<laughs> in fact, the only people you sacked were the Jews, like the temple. Like, that's it. That was your last big military moment, Italy. It was a mic drop. <laughs> all downhill from there. Uh, you should hear what Liel says about the Belgians. Hello, Jews and others who are celebrating the year 5778 in various ways. This is Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Hello. And senior writer Liel Leibowitz. Chag Sukkot Sameach lekol hamazinim. Yes. Are the Sukkot... It, it, what do you do when you live in an apartment? You both live in an apartment. What do you, is there one on the roof for sukkah, for, for sukkahs? What, where is the sukkah? Well, my apartment is the size of a sukkah, yeah. so they're That's like, right. yeah. It's and sometimes we can see sukkahs. the stars yeah. through the ceiling. <laughs> you just need to poke some holes, and yeah. there, there you go. We're basically there. Today, we welcome our guest Jew, David Kaufman, who is a writer and luxury products editor for the New York Post. And our Gentile of the Week is Nelson Eddy, who is the historian for Jack Daniels Whiskey. I feel like this is a, a guest, this is... This is in Liel's sweet, sweet gullet spot, right? This is like I mean, our ur-Gentile. Do you know that on my first, my very first book, which I was pretty sure was going to be my last, one of the only people I thanked, it was basically my wife. I don't even think I thanked my parents. It was my wife and Jack Daniels, distillery. <laughs> you know, At least I it was in that order. That was that. <laughs> Lisa and Jack. It's like the two, the two most meaningful people in my that, life. That's right. Um, I, um, I think I've written, I've, so I've written three books half again, half as many as Liel, but um, the one of them has been since I got married and I did not dedicate it to Sid. I dedicated it to my high school debate coach because it was about, you know, it was Weisenheimer about my high school debate it's years. It's like And yeah, and, you know, Sid was like, don't really? Like you're newly married and the wife doesn't get, <laughs> doesn't get the dedication, but it just, it didn't seem, it seemed like it should be debate dedicated to, to Kurt Correct. Robison. Sorry, but you didn't teach me the yes and technique. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> like, did, I don't know. Was that, was that massively douchey of me? I feel like me? as if she hasn't suffered enough from the effects of like all your debate training in Would her day to day life. Was it massively douchey of you? I'm I'm gonna go ahead and say yes. <laughs> gonna I'm go gonna go yes. ahead and say absolutely yes. And um, sit, I sit want this to be something that God everyone like gets mad you. about you. Gets What's mad that? at you about? Do you know by the way that people? Speaking of of things, people can speaking, speaking of about, people, we have had. Uh, hold on, I'm, I'm gonna get this gentleman's name uh, just right. Uh, someone on Twitter this morning, a gentleman by the name of Hayden Graham, tweeted at us, did Mark Oppenheimer pay for the ticket to denial? <laughs> this is a thing now. That I don't pay for movies? Yeah. Yes. Wow. Um, it's, it's, it's following you into 5777. <laughs> did, did you repent for this on Yom Kippur? Were you like, <laughs> I have to God, be honest. So let's, let's talk Yom Kippur. Shamnu Bagadnu. I- <laughs> <laughs> Didn't pay for denial. <laughs> Movie new. In um, your defense, that was a press screening. So, yeah. So nobody no, in you the didn't press pay, but... pays for the movies they go see to write about and talk about in the press. It's like it's one of the little free bennies that we get. And you know what? A lot of the time, it ain't worth it. Like as we can all right. I mean, we are all the victim of a lot of books that have arrived in the mail and free tickets that we'd actually want to give right back. No. Yeah, victims. Victims is just the right word. It's exactly. We suffer so much it's so from hard. all this free entertainment. All the free. Sometimes swag. it's not good. I tell you. Um, but for Yom Kippur, I actually had a fairly meaningful Yom Kippur in a very specific way. It was pretty much a, a full fast, with with two exceptions. One, I swallowed down my um, 
allergy, my Claritin and my cholesterol <laughs> pill in the morning. And so there was a little gulp of water. And then I end the fast at about 5.30 instead of going all the way because our friend Margie Rosenthal has a break fast that starts early. She's reform. So um, <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's reform. She's reform. So um, no, Should no, no, we fast 23 hours? <laughs> so, but otherwise, <laughs> full fast. But I want to say this, that about um, 1 o'clock, I realized that the quality of 1 p.m. when you're fasting, at least this year, it felt different from 11 a.m. And then again at 3 or 3.30, I thought, whoa, remember 1 p.m.? That was hungry, but now this is really hungry. And there was something about the fast this year that actually – I mean obviously fasting always slows down time because you want it to be over. But I really felt the quality of the day was different in the way that you know when you're a young kid and the day stretches on forever, like morning is this – is the wholly different thing from early afternoon, which is a wholly different thing from nighttime because days are so eternal. And it actually kind of took me back into that youthful sense of time and space. I also think it's because it's like 3 p.m. on a weekday is not a time you're normally like looking at the clock. But like if you're a kid in school, that's like when you get out of school, basically. So I feel like it's those early afternoon hours take on new meaning in a way that they like don't as an adult. I think somewhere one of our listeners in Rwanda is probably like, really? We're we're talking about the difficulties of not eating between two enormous dinners? My favorite thing thing about fasting is like just complaining about it. It's like as if like, I don't know. It's like, it's not, I mean, it's, it's annoying, but like like everyone, yeah, I fasted. Um, and I actually went to Temple this year. Um, I went with the Coens Mm -hmm. and it's funny to be like at someone else's suburban synagogue because it's like. The same basic thing, but you just don't know anyone there. But, like you know, it's ex- like you know, it's but sort you of know like transportable. Types. You know yeah, the types. Yeah, yeah. Like there's there's their version of Aunt Sylvia, and there's their yeah, version yeah. of the annoying little nine year old boys, and there's their version, right? Yeah. Um. But so then I fasted, and I was just like really, really just like in a crabby mood all day, which was really fun. Wait till you have to parent four children in that. Oh, that's what mood. I was thinking. I used to when I used to when I was a kid and didn't fast. I remember this. I like have this searing memory of having my mom make me egos before ego waffles before going to synagogue. And I like I think about it now a lot, and I'm just like, so she was fasting, but she was like providing <laughs> food <laughs> for me, the most delicious food of all time, Eggo waffles. Standing, yeah. Like I feel like I don't know. I well, really I fasted for, the, for yeah. that a little bit. I'm sorry, mom. I fasted for the whole family yet again. This so since our first baby was born, since been either pregnant or nursing or something most years. And it, it just the tradition has come about that I fast for the family. Like, I am the scapegoat. Everything gets sort of <laughs> tacked to me, and they send me off into the wilderness. And, you know what they do with know. the scapegoat at the end? Uh, do they do they kill it? Do the Samaritans yeah, slice they, it? They make it have four kids. <laughs> All right. News of the Jews. Uh, really interesting new year. Um, outside of a Rome synagogue on Yom Kippur Eve, um, two anti-terrorism military police helped a woman give birth. According to the press reports, the birth occurred around 10.30 p.m. It was outside the synagogue of youth. And uh, in a video posted on the Corriere del Serra news website, Corporal Major Francesco Manca, wearing camouflage fatigue, said he and his partner noticed a woman screaming for help. They thought, terrorist, but no. She said her child was about to be born, and they helped her give birth. So um, This gives a whole new meaning to the phrase, if you see something, say something. <laughs> it's like, Francesco, there's a beautiful woman here in need of some tenderness. But um, I love question. I love yes. Are they trained to, like, is that part of your, like, early basic training? Giving birth, you know, that, that seems they're, like... They're Italian. Italian, I'm just going to say. So, like, their training is like al dente pasta. Yeah, it's uh, delicious. Serenades and basic, you know, 18th and 19th century love poetry. Uh, and, yeah, probably child rearing or child birthing. 
I think I've quoted this joke before, but one of my favorite Jackie Mason jokes was his line about how, um, you know, Jews uh, like on the Lower East Side can't raise a punch against anyone, but put them in an army and they'll slaughter you. Or as Italians, you put them in an army, they're totally useless. But then if you put them on the Lower East Side, they'll murder you in your sleep. That's and I always I think about that, right? Like that the Italian, well, the second you put them in, in officialdom, in bureaucracy, they're just, you know, they just want a, a Prosecco. But they can Italians, also- Italians, write in angrily, please. Yeah. I want to hear from our Italian listeners, right. actually. Deny the stereotype of you being a really <laughs> shitty military power throughout pretty much history. But good at, you know, uh, delivering babies on the side In of fact, the, the only people you sacked were the Jews, like the temple. Like, that's <laughs> it. That was your last big military moment. It was a mic drop. all downhill from there. You peaked in the Italy. first century militarily. Uh, you should hear what Liel says about the Belgians. Uh, in other news, uh, Donald Trump has now, like, the gloves are off, and that means it's time to replicate <laughs> now the, the gloves are off. Now the gloves are off, right? Uh, he said at a rally in Florida that Hillary Clinton meets in secret with international banks to plan the destruction of global sovereignty in order to enrich these global interest powers, her special interest friends and her donors. I don't think one has to reach too far to wonder <laughs> who these international bankers are whom she meets with. <laughs> this cabal. This cabal. First of all, I wa- we need to offer the disclaimer. Anything you say about Donald Trump in a pre-recorded taping, right. like, who knows what's going to happen by the time you hear this. This is going to be like the least crazy thing in th- all week. Oh, All I have to say is Jared Kushner... Your manhood is in a deep, deep escrow. Lord knows if you'll ever get it. You'll never get it back from the pawn shop. Man, your soul is in you'll, deep escrow. It has nothing to do with his manhood. You, every day should be Yom Kippur for you from now until the end of time, man. You better fucking Who repent. Who saw them at synagogue? Every morning. So I bet one of our listeners goes to their synagogue. Yeah, Come on, were, right they at, in. were they at KJ? Were they at KJ or was he violating Shabbos again to hole up at Trump Tower to help plan Hillary Clinton's destruction? We want to hear from you guys. Where was he? You know what? If, and what if was he she was, wearing? <laughs> I feel like those are like the really well-dressed synagogues. They're too important. The Upper East Side questions. Um, Speaking of well-dressed synagogues. If he was in synagogue, one of our listeners saw him there. So we want to hear if Jared Kushner was in synagogue. On Please Kipper. report. Please Who report. wore it best? Unorthodox at TravelMag.com. Uh, in other fashion news, Kim Kardashian, there's some news about her hiring a new Israeli bodyguard service. Um which just makes me think that, you know, what happens if the Israeli bodyguard falls down on the job? What if someone, one of those many Israeli or one of those many international banking cabals murders Kim Kardashian? Who will she meet in heaven? Jacob Neusner, who also died this week. Those are my two favorite news stories of the week. Kim Kardashian has Israeli bodyguards now. Jacob Neusner, the most prolific scholar since the time of the Mishnah, has died. And I somehow see those as related. What's really related to that, though, is that the Nobel Prize in Literature went to Robert Zimmerman, now known as Bob Dylan. I don't know if he ever had the official name change, prompting our listeners to go insane. Uh, Jeff Brown wrote to us, so, Mark, what is Robbie Z's position on Israel? Robert Zimmerman, that is. Noah Stoffman tweeted at us, Mark Op won, Jews can't get the Nobel Prize for Literature. Huh? You and Liel should keep the predictions coming. Referring, of course, to the fact that on last week's episode, Liel and I were riffing about how Jews don't get the Nobel Prize anymore because of anti-Semitism. You, you literally said the, a Jew will never get the Nobel Prize in literature. So and all, like three days later they did. So you guys are 0 for 2 on like, so Mark, well, let's, this let's killed Shimon Paris. I'm pretty sure Liel. you just killed right. Kim Kardashian. Let's, let's say it, let's say it together, to do with that. Mark. Donald Trump will win the presidency we'll win the of the United States of America. <laughs> Donald, Donald Trump, Trump will like be president. It's like everything you say, the opposite happens. The so opposite you basically, <laughs> oh my God, it's awful. This Dylan thing, though, is kind of amazing. So as 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 per usual, you know, Leonard Cohen said it best uh, when asked per usual. to comment. He said, you know, 
it's like pinning a medal on Everest for being the tallest mountain. Sure, but what really is the point of, of that? At this point, I'm pretty sure the Nobel Committee is just trolling us. I think it's that's just, right. I was thinking if American troubadourish singer songwriters are now like if that if that's Nobel territory, basically we've got a lot of Jews lined up, right? Because Leonard Cohen should come next, although he's Canadian, right? But we'll count him. Uh, Lou Reed, all, all the way to Drake. You know, they they, they gave as as uh, our tablet contributor and my dear friend Lee Smith wrote in the Weekly Standard. They they gave the prize to the art form, not the person, so much because there really isn't a person, Bob Dylan. Uh, not only because he changed his name from Robert Zimmerman, but because, you know, he's he's a fiction who's who's many years in the making. Uh, and it's kind of beautiful that that they gave it to this. What do you, know, you two make form. of what do you two make of the argument that one hears that because his lyrics don't really stand without the music behind them? Nobody would ever if he hadn't put them to music, nobody would ever think the answer, my friend, is blown in the wind. It, like though they wouldn't stand as poems. Does that mean know. that it's unfair? That, or that it's, I think it's, that this whole thing, there's like nothing more like first world and like haughty American than being like, how dare you give the Nobel Prize for lit- in literature to a singer or a songwriter, not to an author. And it's like, right. it seems like a very trite argument that's happening among like the people that fight about things like this. Well, first of all, let's face it. We don't have authors anymore. I, I know this sounds like a stupid provocation. I mean this a thousand fucking percent. We don't have authors anymore. We don't have readers anymore. All, all of our, you know, literary endeavors are engaged in these stupid cultural appropriations and who gets to tell what story or use what words. It's all so fucking Stalinist. The last great author probably died, you know, when Bello died. And so, you know, we're sort of fucking around trying to look for alternatives. Most years, it means giving the award to some, you know, Ukrainian translator you've never heard of or want to hear of. But this year, it's actually interesting. As for your absolutely slanderous and wrong, factually, note that the lyrics don't stand alone. Dude, the ghost of electricity howls through the bones of her face. Yeah. Take that, Oppenheimer. Well, I, look, I was just making – I one reads the argument. Actually, it was Anna North's argument in the New York Times. She I saw you said, making love to him. You forgot to close the garage door. I could go all night. I'm a big Dylan fan. You don't you're, – you're, you're preaching I would to, say he's more of like a Dave band. Matthews guy, Mark. Well, ooh, ooh, ooh. you know, that's a whole – The gloves are off. That was Stephanie's unshackled now. I'm just going to say this. Stephanie, I'm just going to say I've apologized to you for less. <laughs> <laughs> Now, that said, you know, have I Dave Matthews around? Sure. I'm a 42-year-old prep school and Ivy League grad. Like, that's what that's we're obligated to. Like, this reminds if, me. Okay, so we're not in the studio together. Are you wearing, like, a vest? I'm not. I'm in, wearing I'm wearing, are you a wearing black, flannel? I'm wearing a black American Apparel t-shirt and J. Crew what? Be- beige cords. I'm wearing wow. cords today. Yeah, Connecticut nice. James Dean. Connecticut James Dean. <laughs> you know why I wear the black t-shirt? This is getting so far afield. Well, actually, it brings it back to Judaism because David Duchovny is half Jewish. But- after a couple seasons of Californication, I just thought I do need more black T-shirts. He rocks that look so hard, so well, so. So sexy. after a few a few seasons of Californication, you thought we were we're both incredibly sexy writers yeah. who could basically yeah, have any do. woman we want. So I'm just going to go ahead and put on the black T-shirt too. Yeah, we're both like kind of Jewish looking. <laughs> Brown hair. We're both irresistible <laughs> to women. Let's guys. let's face it. Yeah, we both have great hair.
Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Upcoming live shows. I only want to talk about one because this is the one that's coming right up. It's October 27th at Hebrew College uh, outside of Boston. Uh, We just booked our latest guest for that show. It's Jeremy Hobson, the co-host of NPR's Here and Now. And also uh, General Tom Hill will be with us as our Gentile of the Week. Getting a military guy as Gentile of the Week, there's something extra sweet about that. It's It's double Gentile. it's It's sort of like having a liquor historian as your Gentile of the Week, which we do this week coming up in just a little bit. Our Jew of the Week is David Kaufman. Now, you all in the audience know somebody named David Kaufman. So let me tell you which David Kaufman I mean. He's not the David Kaufman from your grandma's, uh, you know, shuffleboard league. This is editor-in-chief of Alexa, which is the luxury magazine of the New York Post. David is also the editor of travel and the home and real estate sections of the Post, and he writes feature stories and op-eds. His mom is Jewish. His dad's African-American. He's a Zionist. He's a lot of things. Uh, But most of all, he's our Jew of the Week. So we're really excited to have David here today. Hi, David. Hi. Um, and I'm, I'm great. Um, I think our listeners may have already gleaned that I'm calling in from New Haven today, so I can't see what you're wearing, but apparently you're fabulously dressed. Uh, thank you. I'm wearing a, a very bright kind of a pink, orangey salmon uh, shirt. But as I was telling our your co-host, that is not my mom's favorite shirt, so I have to wear it under a very dark V-neck uh, blue sweater. So David, you just got back from Israel. I did. And can you please tell us what you were doing there? I was uh, eating a lot of hummus and meeting with friends and joining the sun. But most importantly, I was interviewing uh, former New York Knicks star forward, Amari Stoudemire, who has uh, reclaimed or claimed his Jewish ancestry. He's moved from the U.S. to Jerusalem with his four children, his beautiful wife, his mother-in-law, and his Jamaican personal chef. And they, <laughs> that was my favorite has, detail in the article, by the way. That, like, it's very important. Gotta fly over your Jamaican personal chef. Absolutely. JPC. Which is why we had a hard time getting photos of Amari at restaurants because he doesn't really eat at restaurants. He's in really hardcore training. He's in training for Hapoel Jerusalem, Hapoel Yerushalayim, which is the second ranked uh, team in the uh, 12-member Israel Premier League. And he has bought part of the league and he's now their star player and he's going there to play for God. So I've said this for a while, but now I'm con- it's confirmed. Amari Stoudemire is a better Jew than all of us. Like, all of us oh, combined. For sure. He's definitely, you know, he's he's embraced it with gusto. Let's put it that way. Like, he he moved there. He left them. Like, he's he's, he's, he's really playing for the second it, right? best I mean, this team. Is not, so into yeah. it. He, drive, he drives himself there. He's not, he doesn't have a driver. He's roaming around Tel Aviv using Waze or Google Maps. Uh, his wife and his mother-in-law um, took the kids to Eilat for, 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 the, uh, for Rosh Hashanah. She drove by herself. The kids are in school. He's. I was going to uh, ask, what kind of school are their kids in? Do you know? They're in an international school in Jerusalem. Uh-huh. Interesting. Interesting. And they're eating. They're pretty kosher. Um, he's like, he's into it. He's digging. He's digging Jerusalem. I love not, the, the, 
I love the bit in your article where he was like, uh, apparently a lot of the, you know, the, the African Israelites uh, abjure alcohol, but he's like, yeah, but I mean, I need my whiskey. <laughs> like yeah, he, his training regimen is essentially veganism and whiskey. He's doing the best he can. He's doing the yeah, best he can, right, but right. he's, you know, he's, he's, he's definitely, he's definitely hardcore and, and he's a very nice guy and he gave us a lot of access and was very welcoming and his wife was very nice. So I have to ask, are people as excited there about him as they would be here? Or does he like blend in in a way that he can't hear? Well, I only saw him in Jerusalem. So and people in Jerusalem are very, very fanatic about basketball. So people were really excited to uh, to see him in the streets. I mean, obviously he stands out. He's very tall. He's very dark. You know, he's not your typical Jerusalem guy. So people were very, very excited. You know, that we, were, we went to a, a place to shoot some pictures and there were four kind of really macho looking Jerusalem cops. And, you know, they were like, you know, is it and obviously in Hebrew, they were like, you know, is it, is it him? Is it hey, him? And, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they're like, is it him? Is it him? And he, I, I'm like, yes, it's him. And they're like, oh, wow, we got to get his picture, a picture taken with him. And, you know, he was very amenable and very, very, you know, he's, he really likes it there. He's really enthusiastic about being in Israel. He's happy to be there. You know, he talked about Israel being kind of a relief from the relentless media glare of New York City and a place to like escape from like, you know. Can I say like the Knicks are so fucked up that Jerusalem is like a laid back relief <laughs> Definitely. from that life. Like working for James Dolan is, must be so horrible that when you're just in a yeah, and it's not the just, Middle East is it's not just that. It's that, you know, they're very they're a large, young family. You know, they're four kids. They're Mario's not that old. His wife is not that old. You know, they like being with each other. They like the kind of family nature of Israeli society. They like the idea of Shabbat and, and hanging out together on on Fridays and Saturdays. You know, God they bless them. they yeah, they're just they they kind of just really blend in. You know, they have a beautiful big house and and support. And you know, what's you know what's not the like? You know, I kind of hate that. I kind of hate that when that happens because like. I thought like, okay, well, Amari is better at basketball than me, but I could be better at Judaism than him. And I nope. was like, no, you can't, no you're not better at being Israeli. Better like, yeah. at being Israeli, like he's basically better than he's me just and better at, at at just chi chilling. Yeah. You know, I just like le letting life happen. And you know, he was really excited for the idea of a whole new adventure at this point in his life, and and he got one, and he feels, you know, really really groovy about being there. So there he is, David. Is you you write about things that actually I I have done some real estate writing and some luxury writing and it's such a challenging thing to do because you don't want to write puff pieces right you don't want to you don't want to write advertorial you don't want to write ad copy for no. you want to say intelligent things about them do you have any influences on who like are there people who write about say real estate really well where you thought oh I wish I could do it like that person or are there examples of it where you think people this who is write how it to best are the ones who work for the New York Post. Well, I like that. I meant naturally, to that. Naturally. I totally agree with that. But what's the trick? Like, how do you do it without making all the pieces, without making any of the pieces feel like suck up pieces, but instead bring an intelligence to it? Like, what are the, what are the tricks? Yeah. For I mean, I, before I was editor at the, at the Post in this section, I did a lot of uh, real estate writing for the FT and for the Financial Times. And they were, you know, the editor there was really tough and really hard ass. And she really demanded a level of skepticism. And I think what you have to do is, you know, get the economics in there. It's really, real estate ultimately is, is a business venture and businesses have ebbs and flows and heights and lows and cycles. And there's always, every, every peak has come from a valley. So when you're doing real estate, it's really about looking at what are the fundamental economics behind the story. You know, do they stand up? Who who are the people behind it? What are their what are their stories? Um, I, I like to say, for me personally, in everything I write about, that people are interesting, 
not things. You know, buildings are interesting because of the people who build them or the people mm-hmm. who inhabit them. Mm-hmm. Clothes are interesting because the people who wear them or design them. Food is interesting because the people who who, who cook it and, and consume it. Uh, and those people have uh, often have you know a lot of skeletons in their in their closet, and it's always fun to find them out. You don't want to necessarily take them down all the way. That doesn't serve anybody. Um, there's no point in writing about something just to say it sucks. You know, that's really kind of a waste of space. Um, but you can take a, you know a pretty critical eye. So, so let me ask you, I, I completely agree with everything you just said, but it seems to me that particularly with sort of like a proliferation of so many you know, websites and blogs and social media accounts, um, this kind of realm of writing about luxury, of writing about products, of writing about even real estate, food, fashion, it's gone the sort of like, I don't know what to call it, maybe like a hyperinflation where it just becomes really obsessed with the shit as opposed to the beauty and, and uh, the meaning that, that you described. Do you see that? Does it bother you? It, it I see that. I think it bothers. We, we cover so many things that I think we have, you know, a lot, of these, a lot of people, for example, in the fashion industry are very, very upset about the proliferation of bloggers for a few reasons. One, they tend to be very young and young people are amazing and young people are great, but oftentimes it takes a while, a, a, a lengthy period of living to truly really understand things. In things. Not just educated, yeah. but just experiencing things. You got to be around for a while to really understand things. Number two, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> what? Yeah, you need to. I was just trying to uh, like have experiences. <laughs> she's experiencing even, even, even as even Stephanie as she's just making experiences yeah. as you yeah, talk. Making, I'm Snapchatting them as as they're happening. Exactly. So I think also. You know, a lot of those bloggers or, or digital influencers, as they're called, are paid for what Lord, they, are paid for what they do, and we absolutely are not paid for. It. You know, we're not paid by a company to include a product. It doesn't work that way. So they automatically have lost any sort of like authenticity or integrity because they're really kind of tools of the brand. We're not. As as a result, we don't. We know editors and journalists generally don't have a lot of money, whereas digital influencers make six and seven figures a year. We don't. But they also have like hundreds and thousands of hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers and Instagram followers. Millions. So it's, yeah. So it's sort of, it's hard to, I, I have to think that's part of it. Like You just can't seeing, ignore them. Yeah. You know, you can't ignore them. Does that depress you? I mean, where do you, where does that leave you? Well, I think that's, you know, the I think the beauty of print is number one, that we We've been around a long time. There's a legacy of print. There's a sense of, of authenticity and provenance in print. I think number two, the the one of the uh, the luxuries or the uh, competitive edges of of print is that we kind of have a little bit of, of authority. We can come in and say that, you know, because we have a limited space on those pages, we can only put the best stuff. So somebody, so we're kind of deciding that this really is the best stuff. And it gives us a sense of, of authority and a sense of, of, I think, of maybe prominence that, you know, bloggers or digital people don't have because they can throw all their shit on there. And it's not just the best stuff. It's it's also, I mean, you're the New York Post. Right? Yeah. You're you're basically the the, and I say this without an ounce of cynicism. You're you're like the the poetry, of New York, right? You're the sort of like tabloid that captures kind of like the the essence of the city. What's what's the New York sensibility like? How do you make skeptical? You know, um, we New York New York sensibility is skeptical. It's not. It's wanting sort of a, 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 a true utility. And purpose in a product or a story. Um, people in New York have a lot of money, like to spend their money and show their money, but they're not fools. They don't. They, they want a value, or they definitely don't, don't want to get taken. I mean, the good thing about us for the differentiation between what we do at Alexa and the New York Post, Alexa being our, our luxury magazine, is that the luxury magazine is really a sort of a separate sphere published by the Post, but it's not exactly the Post. Why is it named Alexa? 
That's a very good question. That's that's how I got the job. Um, I, I knew this answer at my interview. Uh, New York Post was founded by Alexander Hamilton in 1801, I believe. So we're the longest. <laughs> so Alexa for Alex? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, did they ask uh, you that or did you just bust out with it and nail the job at that moment? I, it was a bit of both. I was a little bit uh, 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 over anxious about about making about letting them know that I f- I'd figured that out. So uh, I think that might have been like you know the the, st- <laughs> the stem on the cherry on the icing on the cake. Does the New York Post feel so you know out there in in Jewland? There's this thinking. So either the Times is the most Jewish paper in the world, according to the anti-Semites, or according to the Zionists, it's you know it's the most anti-Semitic paper in the world. What do you what do you feel it can't like be both? What, <laughs> exactly. What do you feel like the New York Post is to the Jews? Um, I definitely think we're a friend to the Jews, you know? I think that we uh, try to give uh, opinions, editorials, um, and stories that portray Jews in a positive light. You know, we're not about really taking Jews down. But in, that, in, in the same, in the same uh, breath, you know, a lot of the uh, reporting we've done on some of the scandals uh, surrounding um, Mayor de Blasio have been about Orthodox Jews. So, um, but I think overall, The Post is a very pro-Israel paper um, and pro-Jewish paper. I think that's and you a used to assessment. work, And you did a lot of work for the Financial Times, which is English. Yeah. And, you know, the English sometimes not always, the English intelligentsia sometimes not always famous for their Jew friendliness. Not did quite. You, did you ever feel an interesting um, interesting vibe coming off them about a guy named David Kaufman from no, New York? I th- no, I don't think so. I think the difference with, uh, with the UK press as opposed to the US press, especially the New York press, is the New York press, whether or not you think the Times is pro or anti-Israel, they're into Israel. You know, whether or not they're pro or anti, they're in, the New York press is into Israel. Yes. Something is about Israel or about Jews in New York will, will basically see the light of day. We'll see column inches in a paper, you know, shortly thereafter. It's not the same in the UK. I mean, you have to kind of like, you're, you're definitely competing What are harder. they into? Are they into, are they into like Liechtenstein? Like what, what, what well, gets them they, up in the morning? I think, well, I think pre-Brexit, the UK was into the notion of London being the center of Europe and London being the economic center of of that part of the world, if not the world. Um, I think that England has, because of their colonial history, has a much stronger uh, relationship with the Arab world for obvious reasons. They have a stronger Arab presence in in the UK. You know, there are many very, very wealthy Arabs who live or live part-time in the UK and definitely are a stronger, you know, component of their culture and of their economy. Um, there are plenty of Jews in the UK, but it's not, you know, London's not a Jewish city. New York is a Jewish city, you know? And um, you go to the UK, you go to London. Which is why it's infinitely better. In every way. I, 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 I agree. I, I prefer New York over London, but London's a lot. How are London's bagels, though? I don't, I've never had one. I don't think I need to have one. I got a bagel why here. Would you? you don't go to London yeah. for their bagels. Um, you don't, you okay. don't go to, you why would you? You don't go to Israel for bagels. So you you no. go to you go to you go to Broadway for bagels, and you sure don't go to Montreal. Um, That's true. Whoa. We have to move on to our Gentile soon. But does either of you does Liel Steph, either of you have a final question? I mean, should we know anything like about your Judaism? Like, what do wh- I like being Jewish? It's very important to me. You did know? you fast? I fast. I fasted ish. How hangry did you get? I didn't get very hangry because I didn't fast dish very for a very long time. <laughs> I went to a be- I went to a beautiful store, a beautiful Kol Nidre service on Park Avenue, and I really. Yeah, I was really, I was actually, you know, really excited to go. I, used to, I was thinking about how when I was a kid, I used to go to services for your cold nature, and I was just like, oh, it's like, when will this end? And I think, you know, I only really started going to cold nature and really liking it after the time I spent living in Israel because, you know, because I understand, I understand Hebrew now, I can understand the service. And it's actually, I find it very interesting to go to cold nature and listen to the service and say the words, and it feels very tangible to me now. So I, I really like it. Have I Were told the you guys? there? No. Have I have I told you guys my Jacksonville, Florida fasting story? 
this is speaking of fasting ish. I, so I was once when I was doing the religion column for the Times, I once went to a mega church down in I think it was Jacksonville, Florida, where they claimed that for a month everyone in their church was fasting for the whole month to, you know, bring about the end times or the return of the Messiah or Mashiach, whatever. And they were really into like all the fasts that go on in the Old Testament, the New Testament. They were like doing like biblical fasting. And they claimed that everyone was, or hundreds of them were fasting for a whole month. And they said it's not, it's not, we're drinking water, but it's a it's a solids fast. And so I went down there and um I interviewed one secretary who really was like about to pass out. She hadn't eaten food, solid food for 12 or 13 days. And, you know, and then I went into the green room with the pastor because, you know, it's a big stage. It's essentially a theater, thousand person, mega, multi thousand person mega church. And so there's a green room. He's prepping and he's and I'm asking him, how hard is it to fast? He's like, oh, it's really, really hard. I don't know how Jews do it every year for a whole day. Like you Jews, you're so amazing. And then he calls over to his assistant. He's like, hey, Kyle, um, could you put some kale and some mangoes in my smoothie? <laughs> and I said to him, I was like, what? I thought you were fasting for 30 days. He's like, well, yeah, but it's, it's, it's a smoothie fast. And I said, a smoothie fast? He's like, yeah, well, I mean, I, I can't not eat food for 30 days, but it's, it's only liquid, so it's a smoothie fast. And I said to him, I said, you know, that's, that's not actually how Jews do it, right? Like, you, we don't get a smoothie. It's actually like no food, no what. And what I discovered was that a lot of the people essentially were doing various kinds of – there's one guy was doing a smoothie fast. Juice cleanse. A juice cleanse. Yeah, exactly. Someone else was doing just an alcohol fast. Only alcohol for 30 so, – They should do it. They yeah. should do like their own blueprint cleanse and they should sell yeah. them. Juprint. Sure, <laughs> I like that. cleanse. Hey, David Kaufman, if we want to read more of your stuff, what's the best place for people to go? NYPost.com. Slash Alexa or just nypost.com. Read the whole paper. Uh, you'll find me, but you can read the rest of them Subscribe. too. Subscribe. Subscribe. Awesome. Support. The our iPad issue. And um, yeah. David Kaufman, thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you. Yo, G. Come and get your New York boats. New York boats right here. Come on, y'all. Get the boats. The boats. The boats. The boats. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our Gentile of the Week is Nelson Eddy. 
Nelson has done many things. He's paddled hundreds of miles on the Mississippi River. He's ridden the rails uh, with Carl Perkins and Alex Haley. He's swapped lies at the bar with members of the Hemingway and Faulkner families. And today, Nelson serves as the historian for Jack Daniels Distillery. He's represented Jack Daniels for decades, 30 years or more, and learned the history and lore surrounding the whiskey, which is not my favorite drink, but it's the favorite drink of my co-host, Liel. Isn't that right, Liel? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And as Jack Daniels' historian, he's been interviewed by basically everyone. He lives in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, but spends a lot of time in Lynchburg, the home of Jack Daniels. And we're really happy to have you with us, Mr. Eddie. How are you today? I'm doing great, and I'm happy to be here. Well, so I want to start with a, with a hard-hitting question. You know, we're, we're a serious uh, journalistic outfit, and, and I really want to get right down to the heart of the matter. So tell me, All right. why is your whiskey so delicious? <laughs> ah. Well, there's You a really socked it to him there, Leo. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that, that's a tough one. But uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. Well, there's actually many, but there's two important reasons for that. And one is that every drop of Jack Daniels enjoyed in 170 countries around the world is made in just one place. And it's made uh, in Lynchburg, Tennessee, a town of about 600 folks. And many generations of people have worked at the distillery. And, um, you know, when it's a multi-generational thing like that, one generation doesn't want to mess it up for the next generation. So that's one thing. Another thing is our cave spring water that's there in the hollow in, in Lynchburg. And finally, um, Jack Daniels meets all the standards, the exacting standards of a bourbon, but it does one thing more, and that's charcoal mellowing. It charcoal, charcoal mellows mellowing. its whiskey. Yes, it charcoal mellows its whiskey drop by drop through 10 feet of charcoal, and that takes off the rough edges and makes Jack Daniels a, a smooth drinking whiskey. Now, it took a lot of years from Jack Daniels' founding uh, until the moment when it was certified kosher in March 2014, as I understand it. Uh, what can you tell us about the decision to get kosher certification so that the most uh, rigorously observant Jews could enjoy that charcoal mellowing? Well, I think it was a, a very important thing, and uh, it was something, you know, when you're a brand enjoyed around the world, you want to make sure people... Um, around the world can enjoy it in the way they want to enjoy it. So I think that was a very, very significant effort, and I'm glad it happened. I, I thought it was because of me. I thought you guys said, <laughs> like, hey, 30% of our product is consumed by this one fat Israeli. I'm <laughs> just going to go ahead and do it anyway. Well, you know, I need to go back and see if there was a jump in sales right at that time. I, I, I've not done that kind of analysis, and it might be important to do. So yeah, and what kind of neighborhoods, you, too? How did you get to... Yeah. be the in-house historian of a whiskey brand, and what does that entail? I, I think a lot of people have asked me that question, and I don't tell many of them because I think they're after my job. Um, <laughs> what it really requires is that while you're drinking, you enjoy reading, uh, because there aren't, to my knowledge, there's not another major whiskey brand with a, a historian, and that may be because uh, Jack Daniels places a great uh, import on its history, and it's a brand with a whole lot of history. Uh, there are a whole lot of sacrifices made over the years so that folks today could enjoy the whiskey. So tell us, tell us a little bit about those sacrifices. Where, where did Jack get the recipe from? 
Well, Jack uh, learned to make whiskey uh, there in Lynchburg. He he was really, he was the last of 10 children. His father would remarry and have three more. His mother died while he was a young, young child. Jack apparently didn't get along with his stepmother and left home at a very early age. I mean, under 10 years old. Uh, Jack leaves home, finally goes to live with a Lutheran minister, and it's at the Lutheran minister's farm. Uh, because on that farm, the Lutheran minister had uh, a still, which was not unusual. And so Jack gravitated to that still, and it's there he learned the process. The recipe was his own, but it's there at Dancaw Still, Jack will learn how to make whiskey. And everybody in the Lynchburg area charcoal melted their whiskey. Uh, Jack didn't invent anything. Uh, he was more like Steve Jobs than Thomas Edison. And by that, I mean he didn't invent anything. He just brought the very best um, together. So, and uh, that became Jack Daniels' old number seven. What you said about the Lutheran minister ma- makes me wonder. I mean, there are definitely parts of Tennessee that are still dry, I think. And, um, yes. you know, temperance was probably not good for this. And I'm sort of curious what the the relationship between Jack Daniels and— um, and Christianity is, because are there people who, you know, think of him as kind of the, the, the agent of sin? He's smuggling sin into the homes of good Christians? That's interesting. Lynchburg's in a dry county. We can talk about that. But, you know, that Lutheran minister, the reason Jack Daniels ended up in the business is because that Lutheran minister's congregation uh, decided he could either make whiskey or preach. He couldn't be into the spirits in both ways. And so, uh, much to his family's chagrin now, generations later, he sold his still to Jack Daniels. Now, Jack uh, was a, a primitive Baptist, um, and uh, he really contributed the funds to build almost every church in the area during his lifetime. Uh, so he was uh, welcomed. Uh, by the people of faith, but they didn't all imbibe in this product, that's for sure. And, and you said that even now, Lynchburg is in a dry county, so you can make whiskey in it, but you can't drink it there? Yes, that goes all the way back. Uh, that precedes a national prohibition. So there's no taste testing in the actual distillery? Oh, you can you can taste the whiskey. You know, a dry county just means uh, we could invite you over to our house and serve you a drink, and the distillery could even give it, a, give it away. Now, today I will tell you, I describe the county more as moist than dry. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> uh, we, and I know where all the wet spots are if you ever want to come down there. But we had a change in the law recently where we could serve samples. People used to come to the distillery, you know, from all over the world, get to the distillery, go through the tour, and at the end of the tour, we'd give them lemonade. And they would always, they didn't understand a recent change in the law allowed us to serve just very minimal samples. We can also sell souvenir bottles. Now, I will tell you, those souvenir bottles are at such a high price to keep the locals from using our visitor center as a liquor store. Uh, they have to go, as they'll tell you, they have to go 12 miles, three steps, and one screen door to the nearest liquor store, which is out of the county. There are no liquor stores, there are no bars, uh, there's no liquor by the drink at restaurants. So for all practical purposes, it's a dry county. But when you come and visit the distillery today, you you can sample the product. Now, one person who uh, has no problem getting his hands on a bottle of Jack is Frank Sinatra, who is buried with one. 
Absolutely. Which I will tell Absolutely. you is precisely what I wish to do. I need to find a rabbi who would find, you know, make this kosher uh, somehow. How do you pick Sinatra's bottle? Was it you? Did you uh, kind of... No, no, no. I, I can't uh, claim that. Um, Sinatra was a very early adopter of the product. Uh, in the late 40s, when Jackie Gleason introduced Sinatra to our product, um, I will tell you, it wasn't available everywhere. It was hard to get. It wasn't as well known. And Frank really felt like he discovered it, uh, as a lot of people. Churchill felt like he discovered it, William Faulkner. Uh, many people, though, in that age came to the brand when it was small and felt like they discovered it and became a champion of it. And Sinatra was a wonderful champion and lover of Jack Daniels. Throughout his career, we, we never paid him a dime for his goodwill. Uh, we preferred making him a friend and having a friendship rather than it be some kind of a contractual relationship. And uh, the, the only thing that we did do is make sure wherever he was in the world, uh, there were several cases of Jack Daniels whiskey on a plane, which at the time was quite a feat because Jack Daniels was in allocation. But Frank was big, you know, in, in Las Vegas. He was big on stage. He was big in recording. He was big in the movies. And he'd stand up and say, uh, he'd hold up a glass of Jack Daniels and he'd call it the nectar of the gods. And uh, that uh, really helped launch this product. Now, Mr. Eddie, I have a final question for you, and then I know you have a question for us. Um, I have to ask, uh, all of our listeners over a certain age are going to notice that you share a name with a, a late country singer and film star. Any relation? Well, no, but I will tell you, I have a stack of photographs on my desk where people have been to Hollywood and seen his star or his handprints at the Chinese theater there and feel like I have to have that. And enough people have done that. I think I could uh, wallpaper a wall with photos of Nelson Eddy's handprints. <laughs> Can you give it, us your handprints? Like we should, you should... Uh, I'd be happy to. I'm <laughs> frankly way more interested in yes, your handprints. so much more interested in you. You're a much handprint. more important person than he was. Yeah. But I will tell you, there are several Jack Daniels out there. Jack Daniel, rather. They bet they want free stuff. Do they want free stuff? Yeah, well, I... I, I they haven't asked, but they're, they're pretty big fans. <laughs> I'll tell you that. If, you're, if your last name is Daniel, like... You're gonna like it's such a great thing to name your kid Jack. It's so funny, I guess. Slash respectful. I, I would also have you know, sir, that uh, we were mentioning this earlier in the program. Um, in my first book that I ever wrote, uh, the only two dedications I believe are to my wife and to the Jack Daniels Distillery. Um, my what? my loyalty is real, and You're it's just totally been going. Now. It's been going on since I was eleven, and it will go on until I'm buried with one of your since bottles. Since you were eleven, so. Liel? A uh, twelve. <laughs> Yeah. You wouldn't happen to be a Tennessee Squire, would you? Uh, I am uh, an, uh, the Israeli version of that. Okay, yeah. well, I will tell you, we make our very biggest fans uh, Tennessee Squires, so maybe I need to get your name and address and uh, knight you. Yes. I would love nothing more <laughs> yes. in the world. If we could do that Seriously, on air, that would be great. actual knighting from the Queen would be less exciting to me <laughs> than that. Hey, listen, Mr. Well, we'll uh, take that as a compliment. Mr. Eddie, um, now you, we apprised you of the fact that you would have at your disposal a world-famous panel of Jewish experts, and we asked if you had any questions for us about Jews or Judaism, and, and I hear that you do have a question. Is that right? Yes, I do. Um, you know, Jack Daniel, the man himself, was very interested in music. He had an upstairs ballroom at his house where he had dances at his Steinway Grand. He formed the Silver Cornet Band 
to help promote his product because he knew music was important. I'm just curious what you could tell me in Jewish culture and religion about the importance of music uh, to, to you. It's a great question. Maybe we'll each give a quick answer to that. We'll- yeah, I mean, it, it, the importance of music is is paramount. I mean, in, in the old uh, temple, uh, by which I mean the really old temple, uh, you know, the ancient biblical temple in Jerusalem, the only people permitted into the innermost sanctuary uh, were the priests and the musicians. Sort of understanding that if someone is going to move your spirit, it will either be a really great rabbi or a really great musician. And it's also, I'll just add that it continues in Jewish ritual. There are certain occasions when there are traditional songs, as there are in Christianity. So at a Passover Seder, there are several traditional songs that you would sing. But on high holidays and on the Sabbath, on our Saturdays, you're not allowed in more observant synagogues to use musical instruments. So we have cantors who have to know particular melodies, and there's a, um, there's a dozen different ways to read the musical notations depending on what holiday you're on. So there's actually, when you get into liturgical stuff, it's very complicated and it's very um, it's very revered. So yeah, I would say a big, big... And then, of course, in secular culture, there's, there's Jewish, uh, all kinds of Jewish music from different parts of the world. To me, I think about sort of the revival recently of things like klezmer music, which is sort of traditional Jewish music that has now become like back in vogue in a, in a funny way. Um, with young people taking on these these older traditions, Th- those are cultural, obviously. But um. mm-hmm. well, thank you. That's uh, all very interesting. I think uh, uh, the folks in Lynchburg, and it sounds like folks around the world who are Jewish, share a great love of music. Well, when we come down there for Liel's nighting or whatever it is that you're going to do to him, and to get our free samples, uh, we will bring some CDs of Jewish music for you. That'd be great. All right, Mr. Eddie, thank you so much for being our Gentile of the week. I'm honored. Thank All you. Right. As are we. Bye now. Drinking again and thinking of when, when you loved me. Oh boy, did we get mail. Last week, we read a listener's question asking, what's the most Gentile or Goyish liquor and what's Jewish and et cetera? And we decided on rum being the least Jewish liquor, the most Goyish liquor, because in Liel's words, there were no Jewish pirates. I think it was Liel, you famous, said that, right? Famous last words. Famous last words. It turns out that's like when I said that there's never been a Sandy Koufax of the NFL, which got all of Sid Luckman's extended multi-generational fan club sending us death threats. Turns out there are a lot of people who are into Jews and pirates. So here's a little sampling. Uh, our loyal Twitter follower at Outcast Spice tweeted us, there were totally Jewish pirates. Super Jewy highlight leading the only successful capture of the Spanish treasure fleet of 1628. Whatever that was. David Lev wrote to us on email at unorthodox at tabletmag.com, quote, one of the most infamous pirates of the Spanish main, Jean Lafitte, one of the influences for Johnny Depp's Captain Jack Sparrow, apparently, is also believed to have been a Sephardic Jew, unquote. Alice Friedman writes, Alice Hoffman's new book tells the story of Pissarro's Jewish family in St. Thomas, definitely rum drinkers. Jake Schulman wrote to us, Dear Stephanie Mark Liel, First, thank you for being constant voices to accompany my commute with Mark's clueless dad shtick, Liel's militant Israeliness, and <laughs> Stephanie putting up with you both. This makes the podcast truly a joy to listen exhausting. to. I love, I love how I... Stephanie's kudos is just like, thank you for putting up with these idiots. <laughs> I also just want to say, Jake Schulman, like my clueless dad shtick. It's not a shtick, brother. Like I He's literally both a dad and clueless. <laughs> I'm not working at being a clueless dad. I'm actually a dad and I'm actually clueless. But uh, anyway, Jake continues. Now 
now that I'm finally caught up, I feel able to respond in semi-real time to a claim made in this most recent episode. It was decided that rum is the most goyish liquor because, as Mark put it, there are no Jewish pirates. I thought Liel said that, but whatever. Jake writes, not to call you out, but that is a very Ashkenormative thing to claim. Many Damn. The, I know. He went nuclear. Many of the earliest settlers, Jake writes, of the New World were conversos and moranos, fleeing the wrath of the Inquisition. It is no coincidence that Columbus's voyage coincides with the Reconquista and the Sephardi expulsion. He goes on. For example, Jamaica at one point was 20% Sephardi Jewish. They suffered under Spanish rule and helped with the British takeover of the island. So while rum may not be such a Jewish liquor now, there were definitely rum-drinking Jewish pirates roaming the Caribbean at one point. I like, by the way, how Jake goes from there were Jews there to there were Jewish pirates there. <laughs> like, if you're Jewish and in the Caribbean, you're a pirate. You guys, I just want to say, you guys are literally wrong about everything. Right. Really, we That's just make right. stuff up. You, you, uh, you opposite Mark, take you called I, Shimon Peres' death. You literally, days before a Jewish right. person got the Nobel Prize in Literature, said no Jew will ever win the Nobel Prize in Literature. <laughs> and you guys are just like, no Jewish pirates. Yeah. Right. No Jewish or, pirates. Anyway, totally. thank you to the listeners to continually for continually right. calling out these guys. Donald so Trump great will that be our president. listeners are so much smarter <laughs> than again. we Donald are. Trump I love it. Will be president. Donald uh, Trump will be president. Donald Trump will be president. We're wrong about everything. Jake Shulman continues, my vote for the most Goyish liquor is tequila, not necessarily for the history, but because of Tila Tequila and her anti-Semitic comments. Thank I you like for everything, it. Jake Shulman. P.S., he writes, I wish JJ and Cat Stevens my fondest hellos. Also, Liel, why don't you have a pet? Maybe you should look into getting something like a hamster. Your kids would love it. Uh, Jake, if you keep if you go back into deep unorthodox history, you'll hear that Liel unpetted his last dog. Yes. Jake Shulman just like saw into our souls, though. He totally. really did. He's in our kitchen. He, re he, is he, reached, totally... he reached into our hearts. He's making um, omelets in our kitchen. Although someone on Twitter, uh, I forget whom, or on email said, what about sake? That's really true. That's, that's a pretty goyish drink. That's true. Except that I literally, I'm, I'm willing to Except the Orthodox love sushi. Listen, there probably has not been one single Jew L listen out because I know I'm going to get 300 <laughs> emails of some obscure history of some, you know, Shloma who went to Japan and became the sake king of Kobe or whatever. But I, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb here and say there have been no Jews involved in the sake industry. I bet Ever. there's kosher sake, though. A anyone? 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 Hello? <laughs> All right. Uh, if you want to write to us, send it to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Uh, that's also where you'd send us a note to get our newsletter. Go on to iTunes, rate us, get your friends to download, etc., etc., etc. Mazel Tovs of the week. Liel, do you have one for us? My Mazel Tov goes out to Uri Sheft, uh, the mastermind behind Bread's Bakery, uh, which has two uh, locations in New York City and has a new uh, wonderful cookbook out today. Uri, fuck you, man. You have done more than anyone else to make me very, very fat because you make the world's greatest babka out of butter, Nutella, and magic. So I'm going <laughs> to buy that book. I don't eat anymore, but I'm going to look at the pictures and be very happy. Stephanie. I've got a shout out this week to uh, our, man, our man Drake, who, you know, conveniently canceled his uh, two performances this week in New York, which were on Kol Nidre and Yom Kippur. Uh, he said he had an ankle injury, but, you know, we know. We know you, you know, someone accidentally scheduled those. You felt a little guilty. Your mom was like, I'm sorry, Aubrey, what? What? You're performing uh, on Cole Nidre after Sunday. mother Sundown? calls him Aubrey? Yeah. <laughs> does she really? What does she call him, Drake? Aubrey. Is Drake his middle name? Is that where Drake is his middle name? Aubrey Drake Graham. 
Um, my Mazel Tov is sent to us courtesy of our friend and former guest Julia Frakes. She wants to send a massive unorthodox Mazel Tov to Audrey Gelman on the opening of The Wing. That's the-wing.com. I want to send a Mazel Tov to our letter writer, Rebecca Galen. I hope I'm saying that right. She is a recent graduate of Barnard and the Jewish Theological Seminary. She's underemployed right now, but she thanks us for making the pain of unemployment go down a a little bit easier. Our podcasts have apparently been some help to her. And we think, Rebecca, that Hashem is going to make it rain for you soon. You have a job coming at you in 5778. Shana Tova Rivka, and thank you for writing. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. It's edited this week by Noah Levinson. And I want to say we are the only podcast that would ever say farewell to an editor named Shoshi Shmulevitz and welcome an editor named Noah Levinson. It's produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Talushkin. The rabbinic supervision is by Judith Barrel from Benicia, California, who wrote in to agree with me and Marjorie Ingle that it's okay to make children apologize even if they don't mean it. Our website is tabletmag.com. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at tabletmag. Our music is by Golem, and we record at the super elite Argo Studios in New York City. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.